I think the question is, is do we want five impact unicorns or do we want you know, a million zebras that are in communities? Regular listeners of the One-Eyed Man podcast will remember that I spent last year doing a a master's degree at the London School of Economics in central London, a really fantastic learning experience. And one of the lecturers on my program is a lady by the name of Oni Patton Power. Uh, Oni's topic in our program was exponential technologies for social impact. But the large majority of the content that she shared with us was ways to rethink uh, early stage finance for entrepreneurs and specifically entrepreneurs that are building businesses that have purpose at the center that encourage more sustainable, more resilient growth. I've engaged in a number of conversations with Ani since about how VC works or, you know, for that matter, doesn't work in the world today. And she really is arguably the world's foremost thinker on innovative vehicles for early stage financing, for redesigning uh, the way that we invest and specifically invest in impact. Uh, her official CV is, uh, is extraordinary. She's the founder of Intelligent Impact, an associate fellow uh, at Oxford University at the Said Business School. She's the entrepreneur in resident at the Skoll Center for Entrepreneurship or an entrepreneur in residence and an advisor at the Bertha Center uh, for Social Entrepreneurship in uh, the University of Cape Town. Uh, she is based in Cape Town. We're very lucky to have her. And yeah, she was the guest on my show today. And in this particular episode, we talk about uh, work that she's doing, some research that she's doing uh, as part of a book that she is writing uh, for entrepreneurs who want to rethink the way they finance their businesses, specifically for the world of social impact. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ani, thanks so much for taking time to chat through what I think is is a topic that both you and I are very passionate about. You shared with me an article that's just been published as, as I guess, a precursor to this really incredible book that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea behind the book and why you're engaging in that project and what we can expect to see come out the other end? Of course. It's great to be here. So, the book, the project, the article, all of the kind of pieces of work are around redesigning venture finance. So I've yeah. been in the kind of venture finance world for about 14 years. And, you know, as much as there are wonderful things about venture capital and private equity and, you know, debt for SMEs, there are some really big glaring holes around organizations that they don't serve, ways in which they don't serve um, founders, and, you know, for ways they don't work for funders. So my overarching goal is um, to have us relook at venture finance and design it in a way that works for founders, for funders, and for communities. And that's the driving goal behind the work that I'm doing right now. Um, and it's having some kind of tangible outputs around structures, as well as kind of rethinking how we evaluate and allocate capital. What are you learning in your research and in the conversations that you're having about why venture finance looks the way it does today? Because we could make arguments that it looks the way it does because that has worked better than anything else in the past. 
we could also make arguments that it looks that way because it's an accepted norm or because there's a copycat syndrome in play. What, what are you learning about the way venture capital looks and works today and how it should be designed better? So it's really two different questions. So why does it look the way it looks today is, you know, fair, as you said, there's a bit of, of copycat, but it's, you know, it's a market and evolution. Venture capital is only as old as, you know, the 80s. That's when I was born. That's not that long ago. So it's it has evolved. But, you know, it was at the time when venture capital was created, you know, this idea, and it was an American idea, really, of investing in an idea, as opposed mm. to a company and bricks and mortar and, you know, something you could see and feel. And, and it was crazy. So, you know, at the time, this idea of just investing in someone's idea was an innovation. And that's the thing about innovation is that it, it's continual. So, you know, it never stops. And so at the time, the idea of creating an industry that was able to create risk capital for entrepreneurs yeah. spawned, you know, a huge generation of entrepreneurship and, you know, really did um, set the basis for a lot of what we see today. It just hasn't evolved. So the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, is that Venture capital works for a very small set of entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs that are willing to give up ownership in their business and are projecting exponential growth. You have to have those two things to be able to work for venture capital. And that's fine. So that's a subset of entrepreneurs. Now, the problem is, is there is no other types. Well, I should say there are not no other types. There are lots of other types. We think there aren't other types of risk capital for entrepreneurs yes. other than venture capital. So it means that if you're willing to give up ownership and you have exponential growth or you're willing to project exponential growth, you can get risk capital. Otherwise, sure. you're stuck cash flow financing, um, raising money from friends and family in form of debt, someday being able to apply for bank financing. And so there's a real gap in risk capital for entrepreneurs that look like most companies, particularly in emerging markets. Yeah. So, I mean, that immediately conjures up memories of running running a business in the technology and marketing industry for a long time and, and watching my friends and fellow entrepreneurs kind of lamenting the lack of established VC or deal flow or interest at all in, you know, specifically in South Africa. The one counter argument to that reality or the, the lack of a, a vibrant ecosystem locally was that a lot of the businesses that were built were very resilient and robust in their, they, they didn't grow as quickly. They didn't maybe share this uh, or show the same hockey stick acceleration that, that some of our counterparts maybe in the States or in the UK did, but, but a lot of them are still around today. So, so there's one argument against, still, I, I, you know, I want to acknowledge right up front though, that a lot of people that started those businesses already had access to yeah. networks or to uh, a, an element of starting finance. So, how do you think about that in terms of the, the tension between startup capital and also building resilient businesses? It's a very good question. And I think, you know, the idea of resilient businesses, you know, there's, I think you can, you can put it into two buckets. So you can be resilient because you have money and you don't have to worry about, you know, accessing additional capital or you can support yourself. And so you're able to just, you know, push a business on until you reach point profitability and be able to do cash flow financing. And then there's resilience in the sense of you actually don't have any outside funding. You have to support others. Sure. And, you know, in South Africa, 
it's an example of what we have in lots of other parts of the world where there's, you know, significant inequality. And, you know, I see entrepreneurs in the work that I've done for years that, you know, don't have the luxury of spending nine months working for free and being yes. able to live and support themselves. And so there's, you know, when we think about the spectrum of capital, we're just talking about risk capital. Well, what type of risk? Because actually grant capital and government subsidies are a great way for very, very early entrepreneurs. In some cases, places mm. where VCs wouldn't go. So, you know, there's a the work that I do around innovative financing really spans this entire spectrum of a life cycle of an entrepreneur or a project. And so, you know, starting at that very early stage, there's a need for like very risk capital, grant capital, in essence, that helps entrepreneurs yeah. to, do, to do that. And then, you know, kind of coming over that hump from, you know, creating a product and then to scaling. I think the issue in South Africa that we have is that once you are, revenue positive, there's a lot more opportunities, not enough, I don't think, but there's more opportunities, but there's a lot of gaps along that life cycle journey for an entrepreneur. Some of what I'm hearing you say, and what I've heard you say before is that, you know, there's this perception that the money isn't there to to provide a springboard or, or, or a catalyst for growth, especially in, in emerging markets. But some of what I'm hearing you say is that the money is there, the links aren't there, the connections aren't there. And certainly I know that you've seen, researched and written a lot about this topic, about how we connect capital with founders. Is this the best way to accelerate that by redefining the way that capital is invested or, or designed or structured? Yes. There's two different elements to this. Um, where I'm doing a lot of work right now is really kind of at the deal level. So thinking about how mm. we redesign deal structures, but there's a real need to redesign fund structures as well. So individuals respond to incentives. So, you know, traditional fund structures incentivize a lot of times these types of portfolios. And, and I think it's, you know, the idea of rethinking will come up a lot today. Um, and so, sure. you know, rethinking how, for instance, carry works, how the profit is distributed for a venture capital or a private equity firm, and, and how do you link that to potentially multiple factors or be able to help, um, you know, entrepreneurs um, grow businesses as opposed to just grow exponential businesses. Another thing is rethinking portfolios. So, you know, one of the things people often say is, well, but venture capital is risky, so it has to work the way it works, right? So venture capital works 10 companies, you're expecting one company to blow the lights out, two to three companies maybe do okay, and the rest to essentially fail. And that's how you're going to make yeah. your money. Um, and yeah. so people say, well, how do, you know, how do we get around that? And so one, yes. one example of how to get around that is to reconstruct that portfolio. Well, what if instead you use something like revenue-based or dividends-based financing where you were looking for three times your money back on 80% of your portfolio as opposed to 10 times your money back on 20% of your portfolio. And then yeah. you're expecting at least some repayment of the money that you put in. And so your portfolio looks very different. And if we change how that portfolio looks, we change the types of companies that come into that portfolio. And I just want to mention something here that's quite important, which is around gender. So study after study after study finds that men are more likely to exaggerate when talking about their skills and when talking about their businesses. 
This means that when a founder goes up in front of funders and talks about what their company is going to be in five years, a male founder is more likely to say that it's going to be the Facebook, the Airbnb, the Uber. Yeah. Yes. A female founder is more likely to say, I'm going to build, you know, this business and it's going to grow 30% per year, et cetera. And so which yeah. one of those is correct? I mean, we don't know that, right? But sure. a VC looking to hear that they are going to invest in the next Airbnb, although that's not as good of an example anymore, <laughs> but Indeed. wanting to invest in you know, the next big thing, you know, wants to hear that. And so entrepreneurs, whether they're female or not, but entrepreneurs that aren't willing to say that they are going to grow exponentially, then can't access this capital. And so it's a structural problem. So, so changing the instrument and changing the portfolio compensation does change some of that access. And that's really important because part of it is around, a big piece of it is around access. So the problem is that if you want to explore this with more sincerity, especially if you are, if you come from the older or more traditional school of thinking about VC, you, you have to, you have to at least start divorcing yourself from the idea of pursuing the unicorn. We've spoken a little bit about this before and, and about this idea of, of unicorns and how appealing they are, but also how they are aptly named in the, in the sense that they are extraordinarily rare or maybe not even real. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How can this emergence, first of all, the idea of the unicorn and the the reality of very few businesses that the, you know, it's like trying to replicate Tiger Woods's or Roger Federer's in sports or whatever, or Serena Williams's or whatever it might be. It's really difficult to do that, but, but everybody's doing it. What, what does that create? What what dynamics has that led to in the market? And, and how do you see that impacting on, specifically on the impact space? So, you know, this, as you know, this is one of my favorite topics. So unicorns and their ilk. So, you know, I think that one of the things, so unicorns represent a lot of things. They do represent aspiration, which is, you know, important. And in some cases, sure. particularly in impact, we, you know, we do want things to be massively scaled because we want to affect people's lives. But... Mm. The idea of a unicorn is is endless exponential growth. And if we yes. think about that, it's not possible. It's actually yes. not sustainable, endless exponential yes. growth. You know, I mean, I think yeah. it's... I, I possible, to, but not plausible. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's, it's actually impossible. So if something grows at more than 2%, it will take over the world in 40 years. Like there's, there's just no, sure. like there's no endlessly under perpetuity. So um, and not actually 2% over 40 years, but I'm saying if it goes exponentially, if it goes forever at 2 to 3%. So, yeah. so I think that, it's not to say that, you know, risk capital shouldn't be or there shouldn't be an opportunity for funders to be looking for, you know, big growth stories. I think that is absolutely fine. And I think we should be pushing particularly African um, growth stories and particularly African impact growth stories. Now, the question is, does that pursuing of that unicorn mean that the rest of the zebras, which is what we call them, these the blended entities that are um, pursuing both, you know, impact and um, and financials, and are doing it in a sustainable way. So, does and exist and exist real? They're real. Zebras are real. So, 
I don't think that it's wrong for us to be pushing to find those types of companies. But the problem is, is if we build an entire system through which we only look for unicorns, then there are huge pieces of the ecosystem that are not being served. And so, you know, calibrating our financing around a tiny, tiny subset of companies when there are returns to be made with other companies and there are particularly lots of impact and jobs to be created. It, it, it leaves a space in the market for, I think, potentially savvy, um, but it's savvy investors. But I do have to say, I know this, it's just, it's not as sexy, right? So mm -hmm. finding a unicorn comes with all kinds of things with it. And I think it's, you know, backing a bunch of really good, solid businesses, um, you know, doesn't have that same cachet for a lot of people. So I heard a term that I'm sure you've heard before, but but I heard it for the first time this week, the idea of an impact unicorn, which is a, a business that is okay. intended to impact a billion lives yes, rather yes, than yes, yes. make a billion dollars or be a billion, billion dollar valuation. Uh, your thoughts on that as a, you know, kind of as an idea? It's yeah, fine. It's a fine idea. I mean, I think the thing good is, marketing. is it's, it's good marketing, right? So, I mean, I think it's, you know, the whole idea behind Impact Unicorn, I forgot who coined it. I do know I've seen, but this idea that, you know, founders that are, you know, more incentivized by building really impactful businesses. Sure. Great. Let's do that. But I think the question is, is do we want you know, five impact unicorns, or do we want, you know, a million zebras that are in communities that are, because the other thing we have to think about when we're thinking about unicorns is wealth accumulation. So if we sure. can continue to have a few people that accumulate most of the wealth in the world, that is not going to fundamentally change our system. And so if we have five impact unicorns, there's still going to be that accumulation of wealth unless there's some sort of kind of commitment to those communities. Instead, if we have, you know, a million tiny zebras or medium-sized zebras and a few large ones that are, you know, really committed to building wealth in the communities um, that they're invested in, that will have a greater effect effect on a number of different issues. So I'm not advocating not for, you know, impact unicorns. I think that's a great thing. I just think that it doesn't speak to the type of systems change that we need to be thinking about in finance. It just is another, it's slapping impact on top of something that is kind of fundamental to how our system works right now. Yeah. And I mean, that's the starting point of your hypothesis or message to this ecosystem is that, you know, impact investment was meant to revolutionize capital markets and yet almost in all instances mimics it. You have a project while we're on the topic of, of zebras called Dazzle, which is an exciting entry into this space specifically designed to recalibrate the way that we think about, about the ecosystem. Can you tell us more and people that haven't uh, heard about Dazzle, how it came about and, and what, it, what its mission is? Yeah, absolutely. So Dazzle um, was founded here in South Africa. There are now 18 of us women that are involved and um, we have found, formed a angel investing group. So an angel investing group makes investments in very small organizations. In this case, our group is comprised completely of women, and we will only invest in female-founded companies. And so for us, both 
It's the desire to make more capital available to to female founded companies, but also to have more women that are involved as angel investors. Because again, coming back to the systems lens, we don't have enough founders that are women. And part of that is because we don't have enough funders that are women. So it's a, it's a whole system issue. And so, um, yeah, so we've made our first investment, which we haven't formally announced. So I won't tell you what it is, but we will, we're, we're oh, working sure. on that. And I had a scoop there. <laughs> we've got another couple in the works as well. And really, if you're a female founder listening to this, you, know, you can go to the website, um, Dazzle Angels, and um, you'll see the um, application material there. There's something to be said for coordination as well. I mean, this, this is another lesson that you learn. It's not just amplifying some of the deficiencies in the systems, but also coordinating efforts, uh, especially, as you said, in emerging markets where often things are disorganized or decentralized. I mean, we could argue even in the States, which sets the benchmark for good or bad investment methodology, a, a lot of that happens in centers, right? And then there are other enormous parts of that extraordinarily large place that that just aren't connected to that system at all so you know how important is coordination and and how how do we think of that when we you know when we consider systems change as being imperative yeah so i mean taking the states is a great example so a friend of mine ross baird has done some really interesting work with village capital looking at um the amount of venture capital that's invested in the States and where it's invested. And I'm going to misquote him because I don't have the, the document up in front of me, but it was somewhere in the realm of about 80% of capital was invested within the, in the two coasts. So um, on the West Coast and the East Coast. Um, and so there's this whole kind of what people jokingly refer to as a flyover area in the U.S., which is where I am actually mm. from. So part of their work has been to look at how do you do more capital in kind of the areas that don't have as much um, investment. And they're actually big advocates for some of the types of financing that I'm kind of uncovering and have been using in my own work, like revenue-based um, and dividend-based financing. And so the other thing in, in the States, and again, we have all these stats because you know, you, this information is available is also from a gender perspective. So, you know, it's the stats have gotten slightly better, but it's still over 90% of venture capital goes to male founders. And that's just, it's just, you know, that just, that doesn't represent the actual distribution of talent. And I think it's tough to do that. And so when we look globally, you know, that is replicated again and again and again. And I think that, you know, it's one of the things why it's not just enough to say we need more women because that is that's a piece of it. But then that doesn't that won't completely solve it. And that's why it's important when we're thinking from a systems perspective to go back and say, you know, what are the structural impediments to this? And, you know, thinking through how funds are set up, you know, what the, the time um, limits on funds are, how portfolios are constructed, what deals look like. So those are all different pieces. And then where people sit, as you said, from the center's perspective. So, you know, one of the enduring legacies of COVID could be, you know, more distribution, more um, remote DD. So more remote due diligence is happening, more remote pitching yeah. is happening um, that's ever happened yeah. before. And so, you know, we have all the tools to do it and it's difficult. You want to meet people in person and it's about networks, but you know, some of what we need to do is more distribution of opportunities. And some of yes. that is just actually being willing to listen to, you know, zoom pitches as opposed to needing someone to fly to San Francisco or to New York or to London or to Cape town to be able to be heard. Yeah. Taking uh, in some degree, some of the luck 
out of the system because there is a fair amount of that uh, in play. It's just uh, geographical handicaps depending on where you where you are based and and who you're connected to. I, I want to get into some of those those vehicles or you know designs or or method. I don't know what the correct word for uh, those different uh, models that you're designing. But but before we do, I just wanted to ask one final question, kind of ecosystem related. There are so many actors in in the mix here. There are, as you've mentioned, funders, founders. There are VCs. There are. Uh, who do you want to speak to the most? Whose mind do you want to change the most? It's an interesting question. I work mostly with funders, do you know? Mm -hmm. And so just partly from a capacity perspective and also because of an impact perspective. So I'm very interested in funders changing their capital structures. But the book I'm writing, interestingly, is actually for entrepreneurs. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that is because what I've realized in writing the book is that explaining things in a simple enough language for someone that doesn't have a finance background really makes you have to just break things down in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. You have to, you know, essentially leave your assumptions at the door and and, and just walk through everything you want to say, because, you know, there's, you just, you can't use that crutch of, oh, well, you know what this is. And so as much as I'm, you know, writing the book for, for entrepreneurs, most of my teaching and advisory work and everything like that is with funders. And I think it's because, you know, I get out of an, a workshop or, a, you know, a set of work with a funder and I can see, and, you know, we could maybe talk about some of the stuff that I've, you know, seen created with my help that's in the market yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And I really, you know, I've got a bunch of stuff actually in the pipeline right now. And I think that's for me really impactful. Whereas some, sometimes it can be frustrating working with entrepreneurs because then they walk up and they say, right, this is the exact instrument that I need, but no one doing it and so for me it's that like there's a chicken and the egg thing here though because founders say well there's no one that'll give me the type of capital i need and then funders say but none of the entrepreneurs understand the type of capital that they need yeah so so there's a big education piece so for me i guess right now i'm just really willing to talk to people that will um, that are willing to to learn and and to adapt and so it's it goes both ways If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. I mean, that's such a critical insight, even anecdotally, you know, I clearly don't come from a finance background and many entrepreneurs don't. Uh, and unless you do, sometimes your first exposure to those conversations is in the midst of a deal, is is drawing up a term sheet, is yeah. is negotiating the sale of your business. And that's that's not ideal because as as you you've seen and and as we've experienced, there's so much emotion uh, and so many other factors at play when you're going through that journey that to be objective and to think in a, you know, kind of in a meaningful and rational way about all of the different factors in play and variables in play. It's really tough to do that in that moment. So I think speaking to entrepreneurs as you're doing through through this publication is a is a critical angle into kind of maybe balancing out some of the power in in those dynamics. So preparing yourself for that eventuality, because as you know, as you've rightly pointed out, you only really you know you only really think about it when you're in it. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe we can, because I mean, obviously, uh, over the years, you've you've developed or uh, uh, 
discovered uh, or collaborated with people in developing uh, a variety of different approaches to investing and 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 to capital design. <laughs> what are the gateway models? <laughs> what are the easiest models to understand for people that haven't been exposed as much as you have? Where would you start people in rethinking and recalibrating their view of how capital gets allocated? So, you know, it's obviously a very personal journey. And I think one of the things I'm working on right now is kind of a a set of pretty simple diagnostic tools to be able, like a set of questions to ask, and then to be able to kind Mm. of direct you to the types of capital that makes sense for you. But, you know, I think that the easiest ones to explain um, in the sense of the redesign of venture capital are revenue-based and dividend-based financing. Um, So let's start with those. Great. So Perfect. Revenue-based and dividends-based financing are part of a type of structure um, that's often called a structured exit. So mm-hmm. what it means is that when you're traditionally investing in uh, venture capital, as you know, so if you get an equity investment, um, it can be something that is a straight equity investment or it can be a convertible debt agreement. Both of those assume that at some point you will essentially own shares in the company. Now, if you own shares mm-hmm. in a company, at some point you have to exit. So there's, yeah. there's generally three options to exiting. So you sell the company to a corporate or to a private equity firm. You mm-hmm. sell your shares, if you're an investor, in the company to another investor. Uh, or you list on an exchange. So yeah. you IPO. Now, yeah. the fact of the matter is in Africa, we have very few venture-backed funds that IPO. So that's very, very rare. People don't realize actually how rare it is. Mm. Corporate buyouts are are pretty much the most common, although what we call secondary selling on to investors is also a way that um, investors exit. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that all three of those are exits. So if you as an entrepreneur want to get risk capital, but you want to continue running your business in the medium to long term, there's yeah. really no viable option for you. Because hmm. as soon as you sell even a few percentages, percentage points of your few shares of your company, that investor is going to be looking for someone else to buy that or buy the entire company for them to be able to exit. So what revenue-based and dividend-based financing do, um, as well as something called an equity buyback, is they say, I'm going to, as a funder, I'm going to give you 300,000 rand. And this 300,000 rand, just like a you know traditional equity investment, can be split however you want to. You don't necessarily yeah. owe um, debt repayment, um, so you don't have to pay me a specific amount every month. Um, but mm-hmm. there's two different ways that we'll, we'll look at it. So I want you to start paying me back, buying these shares back. And let's say it's at two times. So I have given you 300,000 rand. Um, I would like for you to pay me back twice that. So I'd like you to buy the shares back at two times. And you need mm-hmm. to pay me as um, either a percentage of revenue, which means that it can be okay. variable, or you yep. need to pay me dividends, essentially a percentage of cash flow. So yeah. these are only options for companies that are post-revenue. So companies that have revenue, have some sort of revenue. Sure. But um, an equity buyback option um, where you have the option to repurchase the shares, not over time, but at a set period of time, that's, that can work for pre-revenue companies. So let's say that you're creating green, non-toxic cleaning products in Cape Town. And that's what you want to do. So you need the 300,000 Rand to kind of get essentially get started and um, to be able to build this company up. Now, after 
the, you've raised the money, you want to build a track record and be able to apply for debt financing because you'll mm-hmm. be able to borrow money. Now, the thing is, is if you took traditional equity, at some point, you'd have to exit the business. But if you want mm-hmm. to keep running this business and you know grow and build the business, continue to support you know women in your area that are going to be making these products, if you even if you access that debt financing, you wouldn't necessarily be able to you know exit that investor. So yeah. revenue and dividend financing puts a specific ceiling on it. It says that I'm looking for two times or three times my money back over five or seven years and mm-hmm. it makes it affordable. So you're going to pay me 3% of your revenues over the next seven years until you've hit you know, two times my money back. And then I don't own any more shares of your company. And that differs fundamentally from a loan in that it, there's more risk? So what it is, is there's two things that are different from a loan. So one is it's not secured. So it means that yep. there's no collateral. So it's generally when um, a company is, you know, relatively early, they have, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of revenue or they have, they're very close to revenue, but the amount of money that they need would just, would not work for a bank. So they might be worth a million rand and they're looking for a half a million rand and they have absolutely no assets. So they go to a bank yeah. and they have six months, maybe say they have one month of revenue and they go to a bank and the bank's going to say, I need your three year, you know, audited financial statements. I need, you know, all of your assets to be able to prove that you need this 500,000 rand loan. And then the other way that it um, differs is around affordability. So when it's a percentage of revenue and they oftentimes mm-hmm. actually come with grace periods. So mm-hmm. you don't have to pay for the first year, 18 months, two years, or you only start paying once you've hit profitability. And then since it's variable, it means that, you know, a lot of organizations right now that have revenue-based financing during COVID, they're not making payments. So there's yeah. no need yeah. to defer payments. There's, mm-hmm. It's, you know, they're not making revenue, so they're not making payments. Um, mm-hmm. So it's this... The thing that we forget from a debt perspective is that although there's lots of bank capital, it's very difficult for small and growing businesses to access debt capital, both from affordability perspective, but just purely to access it and when they need it. The whole goal for some companies is to get to the point where they access debt capital. The problem is Mm -hmm. they don't get that money at the beginning. They need to buy the sewing machines to be able to get the women to make the dresses, to be able to build out the um, fashion line that they can eventually borrow money for. But if no one's going to give them the money to that upfront few hundred thousand, and a lot of times it's very small amounts, you know, it's 500,000, a million, 2 million rand, Mm -hmm. and that's keeping entrepreneurs from really being able to grow a sustainable business. Uh, Maybe this is a primary intention, but it feels like maybe a secondary effect. One of the other narratives, along with the the kind of unicorn hockey stick exponential growth narrative, is this idea of serial entrepreneurship. You know, the, the how many exits have you had conversation, which is you're not a legitimate entrepreneur until you've sold your business. And that's that's broken as well, because I think what we certainly what I've experienced, again, anecdotally, is that often the the exit and the importance of the exit in, in the value creation cycle leans towards really warped incentives. And, and often the impact of that is, is businesses that are run in such a way that it's not in the best interest necessarily of all the stakeholders in the mix. And, and often, you know, the founder leaves or the, the entrepreneur leaves and then whatever's left afterwards is, you know, kind of expenses are pulled out, jobs are lost, or there's, there's all sorts of effects after that. 
are you in some way also trying to create um, or, tr- or trying to move away from the emphasis on the on the exit, or is that obvious in what you've said before? And I haven't really uh, picked up on it. No. But, uh, you know, how important is it that we move away from the kind of exit worship idea? <laughs> I haven't heard that before. That's good. Exit worship. <laughs> I, I think that's completely right. I think that you know this idea of we know we know from a data perspective this idea of the young male 25 year old you know entrepreneur is actually statistically not the most successful entrepreneur right the most successful entrepreneur is actually in their 40s late 30s and early 40s so we have a lot of assumptions about what it takes to be you know an entrepreneur um, and building growing selling businesses is generally part of it mm-hmm. so i think that you know the question to ask is that what everyone wants some entrepreneurs absolutely They want to grow these businesses, exit them, they get tired, they want to run something else. Now, that might be true for, you know, some portion of the entrepreneurs. There are quite a few entrepreneurs out there that are entrepreneurs in the sense that they started something, but they're business owners. They actually, they want to run a business and, you know, potentially, you know, they want to run a business in a way that's going to be sustainable for their family. Um, They can, you know, have the time that they need female entrepreneurs. They want to be able to, you know, maybe even have a work-life balance. That's something that's frowned upon in the VC space, right? So you don't have a work-life balance. Like you need to be the time you're, I heard a VC once, I won't say who, because it's quite a well-known VC in South Africa, say that, you know, the time that you're, you know, not working on the startup that I funded is wasted time. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. you just like, they shouldn't be doing that. And so I actually raised my hand and said, well, what about all the female funders that are, you know, raising children? Like, how does that work with your model? And you quickly backtracked. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I get the fundamental premise, which is that if you're, if you're trying to build for, you know, the next unicorn, it just, it takes every ounce of energy. And so then this is, you know, Mike, this is, again, we keep coming back to this, right? It's about rethinking the paradigm. So do you start yeah. a business to exit it or do you start a business to build a business that you run? And it doesn't mean it has to be forever. But one thing we haven't talked about yet, which is another idea around redesigning venture finance is, well, what if one of the exit opportunities is actually to the people that you work with? So exiting mm. to employees, that's, you know, that's not an option that is considered very often. And it's something that's growing in you know, consideration and, you know, having yeah. A business that is, you know, owned by the people that actually that run it and have the day to day is a sense of ownership that, you know, can have real profound effects on the bottom line of the business. And so, you know, that's, you know, just thinking through, you know, what is the what is the life cycle of these businesses that we're building and how do we make them so that they actually work for the people that, you know, start them and work for them? That strikes me as a piercingly relevant option especially in economies like ours uh, can you can you run me through the mechanics of something like that in a little bit more detail and maybe if you have seen examples could, could you share those with us because i think those are that's extremely relevant to to south african audiences absolutely so we have historic lots of historic examples of these kind of worker cooperatives and they exist in south africa as well but this new growing trend of, of what i'm calling exiting to communities is pretty nascent so um there's a couple of organizations that are i think doing it quite well unfortunately both of them sit in the states right now and although i have heard of off one-off kind of examples in south africa and other places um, i'm going to reference both of those and to be fair 
this is a piece of the book that is the, the last piece of the book and the piece that I'm still working mm -hmm. on. So, but how it would work, um, there's two different kind of options. Um, so a founder can set up a company with the idea that at some point they would like to transition to community ownership or to employee ownership. And so then, you know, that leaves some of these like revenue-based and dividend-based financing they're great options then because what you can do is that as you buy back those shares, you can put them essentially in a pool for employees. And then what you do is you have allow the employees, either individually or collectively, to borrow money against future earnings and pay those off over time. So then essentially you have a revenue-based share agreement with your employees and they're paying, you know, 1%, 2% of their salary over time. In the United States, there are tax incentives um, for doing this, for creating fully employee-owned or partially employee-owned companies. Okay. The other option is using it as an exit. So there's a company in the States called the Fund for Employee Ownership that launched a fund to be able to facilitate this. So what they do is they come in to family businesses mostly that are looking to exit. The idea being if this family business exits, they'll probably be bought by a larger conglomerate. The jobs may disappear. Yeah. The wealth that is being circulated in that community you know, may disappear. It may be a company that's in you know, a more rural place that's actually all the jobs are going to go to the city. So what, sure. what they do then is they actually buy the company from the founder and then over time sell it back to the employees using this type of revenue share structure that says, and what they allow employees to do is obviously opt in or out. Um, they can sell back their shares at, you know, at some, at certain points. So there's a lot of flexibility with it. And then the idea is over time that as the company creates profit, that that is then distributed to the employees. Um, and there's also, you know, distributed governance that happens too. And there's a whole piece of work around, you know, how do you then run a company well? And so, you know, speaking to the, there's two women that they run the um, fund for employee ownership and then project equity, which is another one in the States. Um, and so speaking to both of them, you know, they very clearly said, this isn't right for every company. A company really does need to have a culture around, you know, this type of, this type of ownership and a willingness to do often, um, you know, some, some, very transparent bookkeeping. So understanding what mm. people are making and like, you know, how that affects um, the bottom line. But so there's different ways to do it. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the issues in South Africa is that people will see it as just a legacy of the kind of traditional BEE ownership where shares were essentially mm. given to employees, but it wasn't ownership. It was, you know, mm. and I think that there's a real opportunity for organizations to think about, you know, how do you really facilitate distributed employee ownership? And for entrepreneurs and for found for funders, really interesting exit option. So you can go get bank financing, mm -hmm. you can finance the buyout of this company, and then, you know, over time, employees essentially take control of the company and be able to access dividends um, and profits. Yeah, I mean, the thing that stands out there um, to me is is the impact that might have on the way the uh, existing founder or entrepreneur thinks about their leadership and the way they lead in that business, knowing full well that future value might be attached to the the capability of the people that they're leading to to continue 
it changes the dynamic substantially. And I think that's a really interesting uh, model to explore just in terms of, again, in terms of second and third effects, really, really powerful examples. What are some of the more outlandish? <laughs> um, uh, outlandish uh, uh, selling to a community? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what are some of the really interesting, on the fringe, bizarre? I mean, I know yeah. another field yeah. of interest for you is exponential technologies for impact. I'm sure there's some overlaps between what's happening in the, in the world of exponential technology and this realm. What are you seeing there? So yeah, I will say there's two different things. There's some, there's fringe in the sense that there's the um, technology piece, which absolutely, I mean, there's lots of mm -hmm. crazy stuff there. But then there's also fringe in the sense of the impact piece. So some of the work on that fringe that I'm that I'm doing is around actually embedding impact into deals. And so mm -hmm. some of the stuff that, that might sound kind of crazy and only works for some types of funders and some types of organizations is actually you know changing the interest rate on a loan based off of um, hitting impact milestones, being able to oh, wow. earn back um, ownership in a company um, based off of, you know, social and financial performance, being able to yeah. actually, um, you know, receive outcome payments based off of, you know, the percentage of the base of the pyramid customers that you have, how many customers, you know, are rural. So like, you know, trying to link in, and I've done quite a bit of work around this, but, you know, how do we embed the type of impact that we want companies to have into actual deal terms? And so that's a whole nother kind of, you know, a piece of work um, that I'm doing that is, you know, that blends different types of capital that, you know, is, it works for different funders, doesn't necessarily work for, you know, kind of traditional, you know, funders that are looking at a venture capital model, but it's a very interesting piece of work. And then if you take all of those things together, you get some fascinating pieces of, I would say, pilots mostly now um, using exponential technology to be able to enable all of this. So I'll give you an example. So there's a very cool company um, based out of Nigeria that's called Sela. And what they've done is they are using um, both on the ground as well as remote, so using drones and satellite imagery, uh, to be able to confirm impact um, and be able to make distributed payments on the blockchain as projects are being completed. So there's two hmm. of their pilot projects that they're working on right now. One is in the Niger Delta around an oil cleanup. So what they do is there's a specific you know, parts of the Niger Delta that have had basically oil dumped in them and that need to be cleaned up. And so they have their app that is downloaded onto um, phones. It also works for people that are not literate, which is quite an interesting um, piece of work. And then these ex-militants essentially are paid to clean up the Niger Delta, but they only get paid um, once a, um, a woman, so it's generally that women are verified, so they take pictures to show that it's been cleaned up, and then they also look at the satellite imagery. So only once those two things have kind of automatically, they use what's called an oracle to be able to automatically verify that the submission that that individual has made. Corroborate. Exactly. Yeah. And then they get paid. Um, another example that they're doing um, actually in East Africa is around affordable housing. So again, they're using on the ground and remote imagery or uh, remote sensing to look at the completion of an affordable housing um, project. So the, the funder essentially, you know, pre-funds some of it, but then um, the developer only gets paid as from a quality perspective, a, a site inspector walks around and, and actually inspects with their phone and uploads this to a um, to essentially the cloud, to so the blockchain. Uh, well, actually that one, actually there's a cloud and a blockchain, but that's 
<laughs> neither here nor there. So and then the remote images are captured to be able to show. And then they're linking in people being able to apply for mortgages as well. And so you can start to, when you have that level of technology, you can start to actually play with some of the stuff I was talking about before about embedding impact into the deal terms. There's some very cool ways to pull lots of these different pieces together. Those are some remarkable examples, and I, I'll I'll look them up and link to them in the show notes so that listeners can can have a closer look. and And again, I think part of what we're learning is that some of the solutions that are designed in in areas that we wouldn't consider to be normally high capital flow markets are teaching us lessons about what can be done in those more established markets as well, those more established domains. So that's really exciting. Sort of reverse engineering some of the best ideas and best solutions. Ani, you know, you've been so generous again with your time and, and thank you so much for that. For people that have listened and, and want to start on a more considered journey towards understanding alternative ways to think about finance or for entrepreneurs who want to start, you know, kind of unwrapping or opening up Pandora's box in terms of ideas and, and, and alternative approaches, what's the starting point? I, I know you're involved in a number of courses or, and programs where do I begin if, if I want to you know, start this journey? So it depends on kind of what type of entrepreneur you are, but there's a few different um, resources that I would definitely suggest. So um, I have a free online course on Coursera. That's a, it's a MOOC. Mm -hmm. It's called Innovative Finance. So if you're an entrepreneur that wants to create social environmental impact as well, that's a really interesting, lots of resources, et cetera, there. Um, if you're an entrepreneur that's wanting to get investment ready, there's a great um, resource from the University, Duke University in the United States, and it's online. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Smart um, Impact Capital, but it works in general. There's in South Africa some great um, resources. FinFind is is a good one that helps you understand what types of capital are available. Not as exotic as some of the stuff we're talking about, um, but a few more things mm -hmm. that are available. And there's also quite a few resources that are coming out in coming times um, from organizations like ABAN, the African Business Angels Network, and others. So oh. I would say, unfortunately, for this type of kind of relatively exotic stuff that we're talking about, part of the reason I'm doing the work is that there just isn't a lot of easy stuff out there that's pretty accessible. So. Mm -hmm. I wish I had more stuff to point to. Maybe if I did, I'd be doing less of the work. But I would say, you know, definitely, you know, subscribe to my newsletter. I send out things um, on LinkedIn. I, you know, post a lot of, of examples and I'm trying to, you know, make more resources available. And there are, you know, kind of reports for entrepreneurs. There's definitely less kind of really good information out there, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, that's about to change. So, so good luck with the rest of the book and with the research that I know you'll be uh, conducting over the next couple of months. And yeah, thank you again so much for your time and your energy and for being so generous uh, with your knowledge. Thank you for having me. You know, the book is your fault. So it's, it's like it's like comes full circle. <laughs> You're the one. Yeah, I will forever <laughs> willingly take credit for that. <laughs> right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, friend. Take it easy. Bye. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. 
If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.